Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. It's an evolutionary joke. So a horse walks into a bar, and the barman says, Why the long face? I told you it was an evolutionary joke. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Andrew Nichol, director of the new sci-fi film In Time. That'll help break the ice. Later, you'll learn some things you didn't know from author Chuck Klosterman. Yes, he's here to talk about his new novel and why he hates salad. We've also got some Halloween treats for you, including actor John Hawks discussing his evil, evil character in the new film Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene. All that, plus cocktail recipes and some dinner party soundtrack suggestions from the band Little Dragon. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. Here is some of the big stuff people have been talking about in the cultural zeitgeist this week. Steve Jobs' biography is out. Prosecutors rested their case against Michael Jackson's doctor. Haruki Murakami's new book, 1Q84. Now for something you haven't heard about, we speak with Jessica Cohen. She is editor-in-chief of Jezebel, the women's culture site. Jessica, what story are you going to be talking about at dinner parties this weekend? You know, guys, part of my job is sifting through the Internet, and... I see a lot of smoking babies, a lot of honey badgers. There's a lot of that out there. Yep. But finally, something has really spoken to me. The story really stood out to me. I can't wait to hear this. This is 74-year-old California resident, a woman who was arrested for selling moon dust. Well, I mean, it, that's a drug, right? It's, she should be arrested. It's a big band compilation. <laughs> <laughs> moon dust. No, it's a tiny piece of moon. Where did she get it? On the Her street? husband was an engineer for a company that was contracted by NASA for the Apollo 11 mission. Wow. He was given, she claims that he said from Neil Armstrong himself, he was mm. given a speck of moon dust that is about the size of a grain of rice. Why was she, she was arrested for selling it? Yeah. So <laughs> she wants to sell the moon dust. You can't just take moon dust to a pawn shop. She decides she's going to call NASA and ask if they can set up a deal for her with an interested buyer. Oh, no. NASA is like, if she's got stuff that is from the Apollo mission, that is federal property, even if it's moon dust. Even if it was given to you by Neil Armstrong? <laughs> like, I don't. I think at that point, it's yours. Like, Neil Armstrong can give anybody anything from the moon, in my Your opinion. Your tax dollars don't care. Really? So <laughs> she sets up this deal, goes to a Denny's Uh-oh. in Riverside, which makes sense because, like, moon over my hand. I was going to say moon over my hand. <laughs> 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 I, it's starting to make sense to me. Oh Go ahead. God. And it's a sting operation. She sits down in the booth and FBI agents swarm on her and tackle her. Why did she need to be tackled? Good question. <laughs> did she put up a ton of resistance? She had moon dust. She could have had magic powers. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. From the moon dust. They know something we don't know. So how does it end? Um, right now her lawyer is fighting the charges. She's home. She's fine. And the story was broken by the local news, which... As local news is wont to do, he had her reenact it by going back to the Denny's <laughs> and sitting in the booth to show him, like, here's the booth where it happened, and here's how I sat down. All right, Jesse, you have to promise to keep us abreast of this very important story. We'll have you back on. I got my Google alert set up. I'm following this very closely. Thanks for the small talk. And now, time for cocktails. This is the part of the show where we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink. 
to serve along with it. Yes, it's our ever-popular history lesson with booze. Ever-popular. Yeah. <laughs> we begin by telling you the history. This week, back in 1955, the home kitchen changed forever. Now, most folks at your dinner party probably won't know why. Thanks to our friend Michelle Philippi, you're about to. Near the end of World War II, the Raytheon Company designed high-tech military gear and cooking devices. The latter was kind of an accident. See, in 1945, a Raytheon engineer named Percy Spencer was trying to improve radar using what's called a magnetron. One night, while working with the thing, he reached in his pocket for a candy bar and discovered it had melted. Intrigued, he scattered popcorn seeds in front of the magnetron. A minute later, they popped. Percy had discovered microwaves from the magnetron cooked food crazy fast. Later that year, Raytheon patented the first industrial microwave oven. They called it the Radar Range. But early ranges didn't sell. Maybe because they were the size of a refrigerator and cost as much as the average American's annual salary. It wasn't till October 55 that rival company Tappan sold the first home model. And another 20 years before every home had to have a microwave. I've made the greatest cooking discovery since fire. The radar range microwave oven operates on ordinary household current. But while today's microwaves are smaller and more convenient, they're also puny compared to Raytheon's original military-grade prototype. Pumping out 3,000 watts of power, it could cook a steak well done in 50 seconds. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for the booze. I'm on the line with Bob McCoy. He is the bar manager at the Island Creek Oyster Bar in Boston, home of the microwave range. <laughs> home on the microwave range. Bob, what cocktail did this story inspire you to make? I actually came up with a cocktail I titled Spencer's Sour in reference to Percy Spencer, who first discovered that microwaves can actually cook food. The guy who carries candy bars around in his pocket. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> All right, tell me, tell me more about the drink. Well, you know, we had a little fun with the candy bar thing. So for the base, I actually used an ounce and a half of chocolate-infused cognac. Clever. Uh, do they really make chocolate-infused cognac? Uh, they didn't, but we actually whipped up some ourselves. Really? How did you do that? A very new technique that Dave Arnold, director of culinary technology at the French Culinary Institute. Okay. And he recently discovered what I guess you could probably call uh, the microwave for bartenders. Really? Uh, yeah. What is the name of this gadget? He actually does it with nothing more than a whipped cream dispenser. Whoa. Yeah, so it's as simple as taking a whipped cream dispenser, adding your spirit into it, mm -hmm. uh, and then you add whatever your flavoring agent uh, you want to use in there as well. Screw the top on, add your nitrous oxide to it, mm -hmm. and then you release that pressure. Take the lid right off, you strain it out, and you've got an instantaneous infusion on your hands. And now deadheads don't just have to do nitrous oxide. They can actually enjoy alcohol, too. It's true. You know, <laughs> if they want to put their own, you know, firms of, of herbs into their uh, liquid, they can do that now as well, I guess. You know? <laughs> I bet you they will. All right, so we have all these ingredients and components. Tell me how, the, how you would make this. Yeah, so you grab your mixing glass. Uh, you would take our uh, instantaneous infusion, and then we add uh, some demerara syrup, which is basically a raw sugar syrup. Okay. And then you have fresh lemon juice. Uh huh. And of course, uh, an egg white. Of course. I figured this is another great way to be inspired by uh, the microwave by getting our proteins at a quicker speed. Who needs to roast beef? You can just put an egg in your sour. I like exactly, that. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And then you would actually take a Boston shaker and you would shake it without any ice. This helps to froth and emulsify the egg. Okay. 
and then you would add your ice, and then you would shake it again. Strain that out into whatever cocktail glass if you're choosing, a nice chilled glass. And then we're going to grate a little fresh chocolate right over the top. Wow. And this is called Spencer's... It's called Spencer's Sour. And unlike a microwave, you can stand in front of it without hurting yourself. Usually. So, Rico, fascinating history. I still have never owned a microwave. Never, really? never made the plunge. How, how do you reheat leftovers? They're actually really convenient. You know, I, I just spark rocks. You know, I just bang them together until <laughs> sparks. I get it. <laughs> and then you just reheat leftover triceratops on an open flame. Yeah, exactly, like the Flintstones. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're more up to date than Brendan, a tad, head to your computer and type in dinnerpartydownload.org to access our archives of cocktail recipes. Smoke signals work too. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. My name's Jason Bailey. I'm the film editor for FlavorWire. I'm a contributor to Village Voice and the Matto blog. I'm here to give you a list of horror film hybrids, movies that have a horror element, but also maybe another genre that you can use more as your point of entry to get into the Halloween spirit, even if you're not a horror movie fan. The first film I think of when I think of horror hybrids really is Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, which is the quintessential horror comedy mix from Universal. At that point, the first wave of classic Universal horror had gotten very wheezy and everyone was sort of tired of them. And by the same token, Bud Abbott and Lou Costello, who were sort of at one time the most profitable stars at that studio, were sort of running out of gas as well. So someone had the bright idea at the studio of saying, you know, let's put... Abbott and Costello in with all of these classic horror figures and kind of see what happens. Listen, you're making enough noise to wake up the dead. I don't have to wake him up. He's up. I saw a hand. You saw a hand? Uh-huh. Where? Right over there. Let me see it. I saw a hand there. You don't know what you're talking about. You're all excited reading this legend. I know there's no such a person as Dracula. You know there's no such a person as Dracula. But does Dracula know it? Yeah, I was... The first time I saw this movie, I was about... 10 years old, was kind of going through an Evan Costello phase, because I was a weird kid, um, and watched it probably a little too late at night. Like, I was prepared for Abbott and Costello to make me laugh, but I was not prepared for the fact that the horror elements of it were actually going to creep me out a little bit. Another good one is uh, Phantom of the Paradise from 1974. This is a combination of the horror movie and the rock musical. You know, the presumption would be if you're going to talk about horror musical that you would mention Rocky Horror Picture Show. It's kind of the obvious choice. I'm not a Rocky Horror fan. I think that if you sit down and watch it at home, it's not terribly entertaining. And more than that, it's not a scary movie. Phantom of the Paradise is directed by Brian De Palma. And this is a guy who knows how to build tension. And it's gory and it's bloody, but it's fun. It's got a great wit about it. It's this sort of combination of Phantom of the Opera and Faust and and there's a Phil Spector figure who's the villain. Uh, so nice bit of foresight there, De Palma. And the music is really cool. Never thought I'd get to meet the devil. Never thought I'd meet him face to face. Heard he always worked alone, that he seldom rode or used a phone. So I walked right up to meet him at his place. I mean, in terms of a hybrid... Phantom of the Paradise sort of has it all. It is a horror movie. It is also a musical. It is also a rock business satire slash comedy. Even if one of those doesn't work for you, there's something else in it that you can enjoy. 
My name is Mr. Dark. Of Dark's Pandominium Carnival? Isn't he the brave one? Last but not least is Something Wicked This Way Comes. I can't speak about it with a tremendous deal of authority because I haven't seen it since I was eight years old. It provoked such nightmares in me at that age that I can't make myself revisit it. But it's on this list because it was marketed and perceived as a family film. This was from the Walt Disney Studios in 1983, which at that time, all Disney did was family films. It's a small town movie. The fair comes into town, and the man who runs the fair brings terror, particularly into the lives of these two little boys who were about the same age that I was. Show's over, boys. Why don't you come back later? See all the fun at the fairground. There's a sequence in the movie where these two kids are attacked by a room full of spiders. That scene is nightmare juice. Fun for grown-ups. Keep the kids away from it. The guest list from film critic Jason Bailey. For more of his favorite horror hybrids, check the blog he writes for, FlavorWire.com. Yeah, that's where we saw that list. But I think they should have called it maybe something like Monster Mashups, maybe? See, it's pretty good, right? See, I think that's what you would call a hybrid of two monsters. Like if you bred a half mummy, half vampire. Oh, yeah, like a mumpire. Yeah, or a werula. <laughs> Folks, Possibly. coming up, director Michael Lindsay Hogg tells us why the Beatles hit the roof, and writer Chuck Klosterman explains why he hates dinner parties. It's a little bit like when you go to karaoke and you got the guy gets done, you're like, oh, that was better than Journey. Breaks our hearts. Sad. Stay tuned for more of The Dinner Party. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that tells you what to talk about. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. How about suggest what to talk about? That is a good suggestion. Why, thank you. Coming up, Tim and Nina Zagat, the founders of the famous Zagat Guide, tell us how they got their start. I had drunk too much at a dinner party. Occupational hazard. But first, our guest of honor this week is Chuck Klosterman. He is one of America's best pop culture essayists, with his work appearing in worthless rags like the New York Times Magazine. I've heard of that one. The Believer, you may have also. Mm -hmm. His brand new novel is called The Visible Man, but most importantly, Brendan, he is a former guest on this show. So you buried the lead there. Right. It's the best part of his resume. It's a big deal. So when I spoke to him the other day before we talked about the new book, I had to ask him something about our last conversation. Chuck, welcome back to the show. Well, thanks for having me here. Last time around, I have to say, we asked you one of our standard questions, which is, tell us something we don't know. And you told us that one can kill a person with a tiger's whisker? Yeah, if you put it in their food, yeah, it'll pierce their uh, stomach lining. That is right. Well, I researched that, and it seems like there are cultures that believe that is true, but I couldn't find much hard evidence that it actually works. Do you have any experimentation in this field that you can, like, prove that that works? I have limited access to tigers. <laughs> well, this is interesting, though. You see, you're saying some cultures believe it, but you, you, like, you haven't found someone who actually died from it. And what little research that I did. I mean, it's not like I have tons of time to research tigers' whiskers, but yeah. Well, you know, I'm not a doctor or a zoologist, so I guess I did put myself in a tenuous position by making that claim. But, hey, you know, I, I was under the impression it could be done. Where did you yeah. hear it? I don't know. Maybe... Dungeons and Dragons game. I don't know. I'm not sure where exactly. I just I just really remember it. I really remembered learning it at some point. All right. You know? but we'll ask you for more, perhaps more soundly researched trivia later. Meanwhile, you have a book. I do. The Visible Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, contrary to the title, this is about a man who can make himself invisible 
And what is interesting to me is what he chooses to do with that power. He doesn't rob banks or something. Can you explain for those who haven't read it what he does? Well, with the character who can become virtually invisible would argue is that as a scientist, his goal in life is to understand the true nature of what people are like. And any other means of doing this, whether it be interviewing or some kind of experiment, it's inherently flawed because if you talk to someone, the fact that they know you're being interviewed right. sort of nullifies any hope of really getting at the core of who they are. They put on like a social act, kind of. We've been conditioned and socialized to sort of be a different person in every situation where another person is around. Right. So he comes to this conclusion that if he had the ability to watch people when they were totally alone, without their knowledge, he would be able to see the essence of who they are. Now, now reading this... I kept thinking that in a way, this is what writers like yourself try to do. They try to observe behavior and try to figure out why people do what they do and present it in some fictional or non-fictional way. So mm. does this book illustrate like your fantasy, the writer's ultimate power of being invisible? Well, fantasy might be uh, the wrong word to use. It, it more has to do with when I wrote this book, I was really occupied with the idea of interviewing in fact, I, got the, I had the original idea when I was writing uh, my last book, Eating yeah. the Dinosaur, which had a whole section about interviewing. I remember I was very worried about interviewing you after reading that essay, <laughs> by the way, because you admitted for one thing that you lie sometimes in interviews. <laughs> well, sometimes I do, especially about the whiskers of tigers. I caught you. Yeah. No, that, that I thought was true. I still think it's true. But right. regardless, it's not that I fantasize about this, but... I, I sort of became consumed with the fact that interviewing is the best way we have of understanding other people, and yet it's still totally flawed. Yeah. And would it be better off to interview someone without their knowledge? Mm -hmm. Like, they think they're having a conversation, but you're actually conducting an interview. But, of course, that's unethical. Mm -hmm. um, you know, would it be better to... Uh, force someone against their will yeah. to answer questions. That's called torture. <laughs> yes, that's the term we some, you know, sometimes use. I don't want to, you know, sure. be judgmental here of any kind of methods. But I feel as though the only time in my life that is totally anxiety-free hmm. is when I am alone. So now does that mean that that's the only time I am truly myself? Or is even that unreal because maybe anxiety and the interaction we have with the rest of the world, maybe that's part of what makes us who we are. So what's the solution? Have you devised better interviewing methods that I can then steal and put to work <laughs> for my show? I don't know if, if this is necessarily better, but you know, I was a newspaper journalist for eight years, yeah. and then I started working in magazines. So I had interviewed hundreds and hundreds, I don't know, maybe over a thousand people during that time. And then all of a sudden I had books come out, and I was being interviewed. Mm -hmm. For me, it was a very jarring experience. Every single time someone interviewed me and then wrote about it, it was never close to the real experience. Mm. I think that profile writers are the people who can construct the clearest, most vivid unreality that they sort of make <laughs> up from small interactions with people, some sort of broader metaphorical point. I remember one time... When I was younger, I interviewed Jack White of the White Stripes. Mm -hmm. And at one point, he just reaches back and rips the tag off his pants. <laughs> and I made this in some metaphor for something about the White Stripes, you know. Sure. So I've sort of changed my style of doing this. I mean, I try to be as entertaining as possible, but without going beyond the parameters of the observable and the quotable. I just basically say, here's what they said. Here's what happened. This is what I was thinking while they were talking.
All right. Well, I hope that while we've been talking, you've been thinking about your answers for our two standard questions. Yeah. The first of which is, if we met you at a dinner party, what question shouldn't we ask? Why aren't you eating the salad? Because I never eat salad. I don't. I never. And, really? I, and, and this is why I don't like dinner parties because you know I like going somewhere where I can sort of just hang out and drink and talk to people. And you know I don't like a thing where you have to sit down and then like this is the first course and I never want the salad. And then people ask you why aren't you eating it? And then the worst part is when you have to compliment the person throwing it as if you've never had anything more delicious. Yes. It's a little bit like when you go to karaoke and you got the guy gets done. You're like, oh, that was better than. Jer- I've never heard that song. So, you know. And especially the salad, right? Like very often at yes. a dinner party, the salad is the least worked on thing. They worked really hard on the entree. Why would anyone eat salad? I don't know why anyone eats salad. <laughs> because of roughage. You got It keeps you regular. <sighs> Come on. At the very least. This idea that if you don't eat salad, you're never going to go to the bathroom. That's preposterous. <laughs> Our second question. Tell us something we don't know. Uh, you know, uh, here case something. Have you ever heard of... The band, the Sheepdogs? No. The Sheepdogs are this band from Canada, and they won uh, this Rolling Stone contest for the best unsigned band in North America. So this unknown band got to be put on the cover of Rolling Stone, and then they were like, they had to be on Project Runway and stuff. They had to do all these things that Rolling Stone constructed. So, of course, in the rock community, an automatic sort of distaste yeah. for this kind of thing. They're not authentic. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, by chance... I met these guys last night. They're the nicest dudes in the world. I don't think I've ever met a band of guys who were cooler to hang out with. Uh, They're they're just these long hair, classic rock Canadians, super friendly. You know, if the the conversation is, what (laughs) rock bands would you like to hang out with? I would say, say the Sheepdogs. Right, but I do have to say, uh, the fact that Canadians are friendly is not something (laughs) I didn't know. Friendly, bearded Canadians, all the qualities of a good person. And this would be the Sheepdogs you're hearing right now. We've got links to their work and to the work of their champion, Chuck Klosterman, at dinnerpartydownload.org. You're listening to The Dinner Party from APM American Public Media. Filmmaker Michael Lindsay Hogg has a brand new memoir. This week we overhear a dinner party worthy excerpt. Hi, I'm Michael Lindsay Hogg, and I've just written a memoir called Luck and Circumstance, which covers several aspects of my life. The ongoing mystery in my life of the nature of my mother's relationship with Orson Welles, but also the rock and roll work I did with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus. I'd done uh, four promo videos with the Beatles, and then after that, their final movie, Let It Be, which was originally going to be a television special, but we couldn't agree on what it was going to be, and so it was turning into a documentary. And I knew that I'd need some kind of ending for this documentary, and I'd had an idea. One day we were having lunch when I said, why don't we do it on the roof? What on the roof? A concert. I put this forward believing that it could work, but without a lot of confidence that they'd go for it. They were interested in their songs, but I was interested in the film. To my surprise, they began to paw at the idea. After lunch, Paul and Mal Evans, Tony and I, Ringo, a few others, went up on the roof and had a look around. I was seeing where the cameras would go, 
Paul said we should shore up the old roof from below to carry the weight of equipment in Billy Preston's organ, and he and I decided to try for Wednesday of the coming week. On Wednesday, I had my 11 cameras and crew ready for the roof and street below. I'd had a two-way mirror constructed in the lobby to put a camera behind in case the police came in so they could be filmed without their knowing. But there was heavy fog and we pushed to the next day. The plan was to begin around 12.30 to get the lunchtime crowds. On Thursday, January 30th, 1969, the Beatles, Yoko, and I were gathered about noon in a small room off the wooden staircase leading to the roof, and to my dismay I realized the Enterprise was not secure. George didn't want to do it, didn't see the point. What did it have to do with anything? Ringo said, and it's cold up there. Come on, lads, Paul said, it'll be fun. Enthusiasm covering the hard muscle of his determination. Let's do something. But no one moved. The six of us stood there, stasis about to set in, momentum about to be fatally lost, ennui about to settle its cloud in our beings. But one voice had not been heard from. Eyes under lids looked toward that person. Time froze. F*** it, said John. Let's do it. One, two, The concert on the roof was the last time the Beatles ever played together to any kind of audience. It was their final performance, their goodbye, although none of us knew it. And the wonderful thing was that they were happy, dispute and rancor forgotten. In the 40 minutes we were up there on that cold winter's day, they rocked and rolled and connected as they had in years gone by, friends again. It was beautiful to see. When it was over, John stepped to the mic and said, I'd like to thank you on behalf of the group and ourselves and I hope we pass the audition. We'll get back to Director Michael Lindsay Hogg, his brand new memoir is called Luck and Circumstance. So we've eavesdropped on a great story, heard from our guest of honor. Now it's time for the main course, which is about the best part of a dinner party, regardless of what Chuck Klosterman mm. thinks, food. Yes. So Rico, this week, the esteemed Zagat Guide the original gangster of crowdsourced restaurant reviews, oh, yeah. released its America's Top Restaurant Survey. That's right. Before Yelp and all the rest, there was the Zagat Guide. Hence the, the original gangster designation. Yes. But unlike Yelp, they were bought by Google recently mm. for $151 million. <laughs> Astounding. Sorry, Yelp. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Anyway, uh, this year's survey was filled with tons of fun facts, like uh, participants ate out only 3.1 times per week, as opposed to last year when they ate out 3.3 times per week. And in that equation, 0.1 equals like a taco. That's right. Yeah. 0.3 is with chips. Yep. Uh, Anyway, I was curious about how Zagat began. So I asked Tim and Nina Zagat, and this is how Tim answered. I had drunk too much at a dinner party. (laughs) Seriously. We were a member of a wine and food group that got together about once a month, and we used to drink and eat a lot. Uh And one of the members started criticizing the then restaurant critic at the New York Times, and he really went at it. And uh, when he got through, I said, why don't we do a survey of our friends? We all eat out a lot. 
And if everybody would give me the names of 10 people they think would enjoy being a part of the survey, we'll do the survey. And we had 200 people rating 100 restaurants. And the results were so popular that the average person asked for 10 copies. And we did this for three years, and it got bigger and bigger until Nina said, we can't afford this hobby anymore, <laughs> giving it away. And so we started selling it in the fourth year. How did you settle upon the format? Well, originally at that dinner party and our first surveys were done on legal sheets of paper with the names of the restaurants down the left and food decor service across the top and space for comments. So um, it had a different format to begin with. And then when we decided to sell it, then we put it into the book format that you see now. And the idea was to put it into a form where they could put it into their pockets. It was as mobile as you could get yeah. at that time. Well, this is very pressing. Not only was it mobile, but the idea of democratizing the review process, which we now see all over. I mean, that's the, the business model behind in, in a lot a way, of things. It's mobile, social, and local before anybody thought about things <laughs> that way. And in fact, we went to some publishers and they all turned us down, mainly for those reasons. They said, who wants to have a little tiny book that would get lost in the bookshelves? And who wants to have other people's comments and uh, experience? We want professionals to tell us what to do. And local that doesn't work. We want national coverage. Well, now your review style is renowned the world over. It's become part of our popular culture where it's often referenced and parodied. Badly. Badly. Oh, badly. Okay, well, we'll see. <laughs> but we have a very, well, we have a Sometimes list. Sometimes <laughs> it's been done well, but not very often. Here we have a clip of comedian Bill Maher reading a fake Zagat review of armed militia groups around America. The Armed Brotherhood. Racial purity meets rustic elegance <laughs> at this well-appointed weekend boot camp that caters to a discriminating clientele. <laughs> Leader Don Wallenbach serves up some of the freshest, most innovative hate speech in the country today. Activities include light explosives training, hand-to-hand -hand combats, <laughs> suicide attack workshops, and pony rides for the kids. <laughs> So you appear time and time again now in The Simpsons, The Daily Show and stuff. But when was the first time you realized that you had broken through and kind of become part of like the American zeitgeist? You know, for me, a real moment was when I was walking along Lexington Avenue, and this was in the 80s, and there was a dollhouse in the window of a shop, and on the table was a tiny little Zagat guy. Oh, did you sue them immediately, being lawyers? I, you know, <laughs> we were you always. Them, did you send them a mini we, cease and yeah. desist letter? We've always been so <laughs> flattered when we've been parodied and copied like that, that we wouldn't have thought of it. My sister is a real estate. Both of them, in fact, are real estate brokers. But my older sister, who's younger than me and older than her sister. <laughs> Uh, is um, I don't want to get in trouble with her. Uh, she said that she decided to put Zagat back into her name when she saw every time she went into an apartment in New York, she saw a Zagat guy. And she said, I'm going to be Cornelia Zagat. Is it something that hinders you? I mean, your name is world-renowned. Nobody go to pronounces it the same way. So, you know, you could have a lot of people thinking we were 10 different people. Yeah, based on our pronunciation. Notice I've avoided saying it this entire time. I'm almost going to succeed. Okay, should we give you a little lesson? No, well, no, yeah, no. Please, well, well, let lesson. him try. Let him try. Uh, Zagat. You got That's it perfect. on the first. All right. I know, but no, almost nobody says it. They call it Zagat. Yeah. Zagat. Zagat. Yeah. Zagat, like the uh, comedian Bob, Bob Saget. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. But even with the mispronunciations, I mean, when you go into like a, a Burger King, do you have a fake name you use, a fake credit card with a whole different name? No, like, we don't because <laughs> we, we don't ever vote in the surveys. We never have, and we uh-huh. think it's contradictory to all the things we really are trying to do. Um, all right. How would you rate this interview? Um, well, we can't really do that because we would like to come back. <laughs> Well, I'd give it a great rating. Oh, thanks. And so I hope we can come back. Oh, see? (laughs) You just got a 29. I'll take it. So, Brendan, the problem with the name Zagat is that you can't say it correctly without someone thinking you are wrong or being an obnoxious snob. No, completely. It's a problem. It's kind of like how uh, Nabokov is really pronounced Nabokov. Well, yes. Although the problem there is that you can't make any Nabokov reference without being obnoxious. Yeah, that's... Like that one. (laughs) All right, Raiko. Coming up, Big Frida, (laughs) the Queen of Bounce. That is a music genre. It is. Uh, He's here with etiquette tips like this. Well, you definitely should watch some of my Frida YouTube videos. Surprising. That plus we hear from actor John Hawks when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, Yukimi Nagano, lead singer of Swedish band Little Dragon, will suggest a few party tunes. Fun. And in honor of Halloween, actor John Hawks talks about playing a monster. Scary. But first... It's time for our weekly etiquette lesson, and here in the studio to answer your questions, joining us all the way from New Orleans is Big Free to the Queen Diva, your best believer. You wow. took the words right out of my mouth. You did that better than you were going to do it, Rico. <laughs> he is maybe the biggest and certainly one of the best performers around of what is called bounce music. And before we get any further, for those who don't know, what makes bounce music bounce? Bounce music is basically a up-tempo, heavy bass, call and respond type music. It definitely involves a lot of shaking. <laughs> I don't know if I could say that, but it definitely involves a lot of booty shaking. So it doesn't involve fabric softener or no you know, different sort of bounce. Definitely okay. a different sort of bounce. Although you could, you should do some cross promotions for bounce. Definitely, there could be some money in for you in that. Yeah, we're definitely gonna look into that. <laughs> well, we've actually got one of your bounce tunes queued up, which might also help explain why we have invited you here as an etiquette expert. Yes, the song is called Excuse. See? Right off the bat. Those are very polite lyrics. Yes. You don't mean to be rude. You're like, excuse me. And so many people forget to say that these days. Right, definitely. That's why I kind of made it a song. (laughs) (laughs) Is that true? It is, because when I'm going through the crowd, I don't want to be rude to people. So I'm I'm usually saying excuse a whole lot of times as I'm trying to get to the stage. It's just manners. You know what? I've seen the music video, and you're actually pushing people to the floor during this song. (laughs) Just just for the music video. (laughs) But I was very polite, (laughs) you know, otherwise. I have to say that music video could have gotten a lot more violent. You play basically a dance instructor in that yeah, video. Yeah, that's it. And you could have abused people a lot worse. <laughs> Definitely. Come off as a big huggable person. All right, well, that's what qualifies you. That's all it takes to qualify you as an etiquette expert for our show. <laughs> so we have a few questions. We asked our audience to send some questions, and I think these are big Frida specific, some of them. So the first one comes from Greg. He lives in a place called Facebook. Uh, <laughs> and his question is... Great town. <laughs> if a friend has less than adequate booty, but keeps dressing like there's much more there... Does etiquette dictate that you gently point this out to them or that you look the other way? 
Well, it will be um, depending on how close the friend is to you. Uh-huh. If it's a friend who is very close to you, maybe give them a few pointers on that. <laughs> and if the friend is not too close of a friend, maybe just let it fly by if it doesn't bother you too much. All right. What if I myself am bootyless? Do I have a leg to stand on if I'm calling them on it? Everybody has a leg to stand on. As long as you have any size booty, you can stand on it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's what's on top of your legs that counts, Rico. <laughs> I like to say. All right. Here's the second question. This is from Mark in San Francisco. He writes, when I try to open a door for some women, my wife and my boss in particular, they invariably stand in the wrong place and I cannot open it. Is there some kind of training for them so they know how to stand out of the way? Excuse. I don't mean to be rude. (laughs) Seems like Mark needs some training. Um, Just be very polite and just stand there to everybody go in. Ah, so so let them open the door, but show deference by offering to let them go first. Say, hey, why don't you all go first? But I'm, I'm more than certain he don't want to offend his wife. Yeah. Is there some place to train them? These are human beings. It's like his wife and boss. Don't use the verb train when speaking of those people. Well, here we have another question. This is from Owen in St. Paul, Minnesota. I am a hopeless dancer. Please, Big Frida, what should I do to avoid being a total stick in the mud at the next party? Well, you definitely should watch some of my Frida YouTube videos. (laughs) It will certainly help you, yeah. Yes, and practice in the mirror. Seeing yourself can help you a lot when you're dancing, so you can check out your moves yourself All right. and get prepared for that party. Is that why they have mirrors in dance? Most most of the time, that's why they have mirrors at clubs, so you can see yourself and you feel more sexy. You can know what to do, what looks stupid, what looks good. Interesting. Right. Yeah, we use it all the time to practice in bounce music. But here's the thing. Now, the dance moves in bounce music, it is like rapid-fire booty shaking. Oh, yeah. Your, your butt becomes a blur, basically. Is there a way to prepare oneself for that? It seems like a very intense motion. Well, that's just bounce. It's nonstop, and you just have to be ready, have a lot of energy, and your booty has to be ready, too. See, I think I'm going to install mirrors in my dining room if I have a dinner party. You know, I think it could spice things up, too. That sounds okay. a little scary. <laughs> it might All be, right. That might be rude. I think you have a question here. All right, here's, here's a fourth question. My friend sends me what feel like hourly text messages about his every move. How can I politely let him know that he is blowing up my phone bill with his incessant texts every month? And this is from Elizabeth in Santa Monica. Oh, my God. Once again, it goes to how close you are to that friend to me. If it's somebody that's just really getting on your nerve, hey, just straightforward to the point. Stop sending me so many text messages. But this sounds like it's one of uh, he's one of Elizabeth's close friends. If it's a friend that is a text free, you know. She's not getting charged extra just for that text coming through, baby. You on a monthly plan, honey. <laughs> I like Text Freak. That could be another yeah, song. Yeah, that could be a song. I was also <laughs> going to say, you you have an interior design firm as well, right? Yes. So you're not only getting text as a rock star, you're getting text from like a, a business. Yeah, definitely. How do you cut through, like weed out the wheat from the chat? Wait, what? You have an interior design firm? I didn't know that. Yeah, that's what I do daytime when I'm all not right. wrapped up in all the wrapping. Um, I'm wrapped up <laughs> into a big bowl of decorations. <laughs> So, and so you uh, make floors that can sustain bouncing? Like, do you help <laughs> bouncify homes? Reinforce it with steel. I, all of that. I take care of all of that. As well as, um, like, parties, weddings, funeral pieces, any type of flower arrangements, I do it all. Wow. Bouncing right. at funerals. That's an interesting intersection. Sure. We um, have, we have one, one last question. question. Yeah. This is always a regular question for our interviewees. It is, what's the most memorable get-together you've ever been to? Details, please. Well, that is a hard question because I've had so many <laughs> memorable 
the most recent one was I just shot a new video for Now Who's Mad, a new song. Okay. And all of my friends and family and, like, the whole neighborhood came out to support me. And then we all went to my mom's house and had, like, this big pot of gumbo with all type of meats and crabs and shrimps. And How big a pot of gumbo was that? Real tall. <laughs> really tall. It's it like was five foot Five foot, yeah, seen. and like yeah. really wide. The gulf was emptied of yes. seafood. <laughs> yes, it was. Big Frida, thank you so much for setting our listeners straight. Thank y'all for having me. I appreciate it. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. And dear audience, thank you for making that segment possible because folks like you sent in all those etiquette questions. It's true. We did not make them up. No. This this is not a thinly veiled way for us to get cool people to psychoanalyze us. And we will need more questions for next week's guest. So if you want to know when it's inappropriate to pick your teeth, for instance. Or whether to wear that sexy cat costume to the office Halloween party. Actually, I can tell you that right now. Don't. Uh, you can email us to our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. You're listening to The Dinner Party, the show about everything in the culture you'll be talking about this weekend. And with Halloween coming up, you will probably be talking about scary things. So we decided to do a little something different and talk about the scariest thing of the week, which is a performance by the actor John Hawks. You might have seen him on the HBO series Deadwood. Last year, he got an Oscar nomination for the movie Winter's Bone, but we're here at his hotel to talk about the brand new film Martha Marcy May Marlene, in which he plays, in our estimation, the creepiest character of the year. And John, welcome. Thank you so much. So in this film, you play a cult leader named Patrick. As a guy who doesn't seem like a scary cult leader yourself, what is your first step approaching a role like this well i try not to judge the character i don't really look at them as evil or good or bad i think uh a lot of these people some might call evil i just think are are misunderstood (laughs) pretty deeply misunderstood dude that you're you're playing here kind of a charles manson type who, who brainwashes basically these wayward youths and really takes terrible advantage of them and one of the reasons he is so scary is that half the time he is the complete opposite of scary. He portrays himself as almost this benevolent hippie type. Is that him? Yeah. Hey. Is this Marco? Hi. Oh, you've got a really nice place here. It's as much yours as it is mine. Zoe, look after this girl. For once in her life, she deserves some real care. I will. She's been great. Everyone's been really great. Good. Martha. You look like a Marcy May. Marcy was my grandmother's thing. Wow. There you go. (laughs) Obviously, you have to make a decision as to whether he believes that he is a benevolent hippie type. What was your decision and how did you come to it? Well, as an actor, the first job for me is to figure out what is the story and then I figure out how I can help best tell that story through the character I'm playing. It just seemed to make a lot more sense for the story to give the character of Patrick some credibility. I feel uh, to to make him a human being as opposed to the devil, a charlatan, a mustache twirling uh, bad guy. Beyond the fact that it's a more interesting approach to the character, for me personally, I feel like it really informs 
the character of Martha because we're going to follow her through the whole film. And if she is just kind of a dim-witted person who fell for an obvious uh, evil man, it's not as interesting as if, as if somewhere in our minds as an audience we can say, I understand how she might uh, follow this guy or, fa- or fall in there with these people. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. But I'm, I'm talking more about your process, like deciding who the character is. Does he believe that he is doing the right thing? Or do you think that he has a more evil, to use that term, goal? I chose that, that Patrick believes that he is doing his best and, and what he's doing is, is right for the people around him. Way more interesting that way. At the end of the day, in his soul's darkest hour, at 3.30 in the morning, alone, appearing into the mirror, uh, I, I wondered sometimes what he saw there. Focus. Take a deep breath. Feel the tension leaving your stomach and moving to your hands. Think of someone who hurt you, who lied to you. Feel it. Feel how they made you feel. Let it build. Let it transfer to the gun. Building in the gun. Breathe out. Release. Feels good, right? Now try that. What do you mean? Shoot it. They're living animals. So shoot Max then. Yeah, go ahead. Are you a method actor? I have no uh, formal training. Um, I've been accused of being a method actor. I'm not sure what that is. Uh, I always thought that it was someone who dredged up tears by thinking of their dog dying or something like that. Exactly. I've never really worked through substitution or very, very rarely. My question would have been if you were a method actor, it's like, what the hell kind of past experience did you have to dredge up to create this like yes. demi-monster? Yeah, well... Um, I think we all have, have vulnerable moments in our lives, but uh, luckily I, uh, I never went so far as to join a cult. Although there's a lot of things that we don't call cults in our society that, that sort of maybe are. Like? Not going to go into that. At this you brought it up, man. It's true. It's very true. Uh, you could even say following a sports team uh, just came out of the air. Uh, you know, very religiously is, is, well, fan, short for fanatic. People get wrapped up in all kinds of things. Uh, you know, there's the cult of celebrity. That actually just occurred to me. I mean, you're not like, you're more of a character actor. But I mean, have you had run-ins with folks that sort of want you to be their cult leader? I've had a stalker or two. I don't mean to brag, but yeah, I have uh, had a, some, some odd moments, I guess, along the way. It's typecasting. Mm-hmm. Usually is. <laughs> Man, Rico, it's amazing how such clearly nice guys yeah. can play, you know, the opposite of nice guys. Yeah, he is incredibly <laughs> cool. We talked about music. It was amazing. What are you drinking? Some Kool-Aid he gave me. It's really delicious, actually. I think you should give me that. He has these mesmerizing eyes, you know? It's like he just knows things. Rico, give me the cup. All right. Thanks for that, man. Hmm. Uh Klosterman, Microwaves, Hawks, Horror, the Zagats. There's just one more thing that we would like to give you before we send you on your way to a winning weekend. Yes, and it's a dinner party soundtrack from Yukimi Nagano. She is from the white-hot electronic R&B-ish outfit, Little Dragon. Hi, my name is Yukimi. I sing in Little Dragon, and these are the songs that I would play at my dinner party. 
Neil Young, old man. It's a classic, obviously. Coming from Sweden, we, we have a lot of beautiful melancholy because of our weather and, you know, our dark, long winters. My dinner parties are a little bit more Swedish style. Oh man, look at my life. I'm a lot like you were. Oh man, look at my life. I'm a lot like you were. He was really young at the time, but he feels really kind of wise in that song in a beautiful way. I've been first and last. Look at how the time goes past, but I'm all alone at last, rolling home to you. Hopefully it won't bring them down like crying, depressed. It can be melancholic, it can be sad, but it doesn't have to be a negative thing, so sentimental maybe is the word. Number two would be Prince, Crazy You. One of my all-time favorite songs is from his first album. As much as I love Kiss and Diamonds and Pearls, anyway, you know all the hits, but, but this one is, is special for me. listen to an album and you feel like you're almost in someone's space because uh, it's very intimate. It's just him and a guitar and it takes you somewhere. I think that song is so good. If I was at a dinner party, it would make me sing along. I don't know if that's appropriate, but... Number three is Ariel Pink's Haunted Graffiti. This song is called Nevermore. The music is pretty sweet, but at the same time poppy and psychedelic. There are a bunch of little harmonies to discover in the song. Definitely, I think, kind of loosen people up, get people talking. Maybe someone spontaneously gets up on the table and starts dancing some kind of free dance, tasting the meals, rubbing it all over their bodies, and I don't know. I don't mind a psychedelic dinner party, why not? of the band Little Dragon and Brendan we should note actually she got the name of this Ariel Pink tune we're hearing slightly wrong it's called Fright Night parentheses nevermore so it's a good tune for a psychedelic or Halloween party that is true all right so you might not want to combine the two probably not ladies and gentlemen that is the dinner party this week next week etiquette with none other than author photographer and punk rock legend Henry Rollins all I have 
hit and physically harmed are, are men, and, and they deserve it. Present company excluded, thank goodness. Uh, we'd like to give thanks to our assistant producer, Jackson Musker, to Peter Clowney, Ellen Gettler, Craig Curtis, Brendan Willard, and Nathan Gunn. And thank you in advance for signing up for our podcast at dinnerpartydownload.org. Bon appétit.